You like movies? Uh, yeah, yeah, I like movies. So do the boys on We Doing Filmographies. What is As they crank out episodes on rad actors they like, you can discover that Ray Liotta's first role has him doing a bad thing with a hose. Are you, are you talking to me, though? Or how in Dingling List, Robert Longstreet donates his penis to his penisless best friend. Kind of feel like you're doing... Does that sound pretty cool? Uh, yeah. Not as cool as Brad Pitt seeing his reflection for the first time and saying he looks like mother okay i don't know what tune into we doing filmographies podcast on all podcast platforms and listen to jason and jules wade through garbage gold and boredom one movie at a time wait us yeah oh that's what we we doing filmographies hi i'm rachel and i'm matt and welcome to the strange and beautiful book club deep cuts dune edition oh i pushed my button Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club, Deep Cut. Dune Edition. You know you love me anyway. Mm-hmm. Everybody else loves me anyway, too. (laughs) I am who I am. So this week, we get to talk about a story. And this is a story where a boy is found, and we believe he's the chosen one. And he falls in love with someone he's not supposed to fall in love with. And they have twins. And she dies in childbirth. And he dies immediately afterwards, or at least leaves and comes back fundamentally changed and then we find out that the boy twin is actually the chosen one and it wasn't the first one and the first hero when he comes back is tearing down the structures that he built up yeah and supported and only only in his last moments does he acknowledge that his son is his son but never actually speaks to his daughter and this is not Star Wars. And this is not fucking Star Wars. <laughs> oh, did that sound familiar? Guess which one came first? <laughs> that would be Dune. In fact, um, George Lucas was like, yeah, I was heavily inspired by Dune. Dude, you rewrote Dune. You, that is Dune, right? We get that, right? It's it's the force instead of spice. Yeah. Um, the only thing you, is there's no like commodity that you can trade that gives you power. You're just right. born with it. That's the only fundamental difference. Other than that, yeah. I mean, we really even have the Spacing Guild, if you want to think about it, because it's the um, the Jedi Council who mm-hmm. are not the ruling class, but secretly control everything anyway. And he overthrows the government in favor of a dictatorship. Conquers the galaxy. Conquers the galaxy. There's a rebel group fighting against them. And ultimately, he works to help the rebels to dismantle what he created and his son. 
who doesn't know him when he first meets him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we could keep going, but we won't. So we watched Children of Dune, the miniseries. Part two. Episode two of three. And I just want to make a mention that I have, since we recorded the episode, probably watched the first episode six or seven more times. So I have more to say about it now. I, I, uh, yeah, every time I wake up in the morning, I'm like, hmm, I think I should probably just go ahead and put on Children of Dune while I do stuff. So it's been in the background for, oh, well, we've been steeped in Dune like tea for a yeah. while here. So one of the changes, we make quite a few changes. Most of which I agree with. From the book. From the books, yeah. Uh, we make the twins much, much older. Yeah, I so, agree that that helps. Yeah, Leto and Ganima are 18, almost 18. Six months from being 18, or of age, as they say. They don't ever give them an age, but yeah. six months from being adults. And we get these two phenomenal actors, and we actually get to have people, to, they get to deliver these lines that they deliver in the books. Except in the books, they're nine. And if there were a bunch of nine-year-olds trying to do this, I don't think it would be anywhere near as successful as it ends up being. So this is a good change. Mm-hmm. This, this is good. Plus, we get James McAvoy. And we get the lady who played Ganima and Jessica Brooks, who plays Ganima, who doesn't hasn't gone on to be as successful as James McAvoy, but she does a good job in this. And I think they do a really they do a phenomenal job being twins. Yes. Finishing each other's sentences, having mm-hmm. a very casual physical intimacy that you would expect from two people who have never been apart ever in their lives. And I think it works really well. We're going to get to the costumes. I'm not ready to talk about them yet. So when then <laughs> uh, we also get more Wensensia, which I like because it allows us to compress every single plot into Wensensia. Right. Like, I'm not going to lie. We just read Children of Dune, and I don't remember why the Remen, like the Remen, the rebel Fremen are rebelling. I'm like, I know they're rebelling because Alia's not. The desert's being destroyed. Yeah. And Alia's not a great leader. Like, I get that. But also, I don't remember the catalyst for why they start rebelling. Uh, It's like buried in the layers of just by the end of Children of Dune, there's so many plates spinning. It's like I don't I don't fucking know anymore. Like I'm enjoying what I'm reading, but I've checked out of like cause and effect here. Yeah. And yet in Children of Dune, the miniseries, when Sensia is responsible, they have people on the planet who are sowing discord, sort of like um Russian bots on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Where Threads was really cool for a while, and then they opened it up, and all of a sudden, it's super toxic. And why is it super toxic? Well, because we unblocked a lot of the unblocked places. Unblocked Russia. A lot of the places that have bot farms that send out these bots whose specific purpose is to stir people up. And we get, I mean, that's effectively what she's doing, except she has, like, she's funding the yes, rebellion. She, she's a political nation state. That's putting out propaganda yeah. to manipulate, like, the rest of the um, society's perceptions of the ruling group. Yeah, successfully, yeah. because Alia is losing it. And then my next note is about the costumes, and so I just want to spend a little time on the costumes. Um, I think one of the unsung heroes of any movie, television show, play is always the costume department. Especially sci-fi fantasy stuff. 
Yeah, especially sci-fi fantasy where you have the expectation of otherworldliness, but you can't go into, um, how can I describe this? Like Robbie the Robot. Like you can't go full nuclear retro futurism. Right. You have to strike this futuristic yet att not attainable, but attractive i'm not sure how to put that like there's a fine art to sci-fi costuming is what mm -hmm. i'm saying because you have to look you can't be like well of course we're going to keep wearing jeans in the year 10,191 jeans are perfect yet no okay well we're going to come up with new fastenings or new fabrics or new styles but fundamentally pants you can't you know what? you looked at me weird when i said robbie the robot robbie the robot is like that classic sci-fi robot with the um Dryer vent arms. Oh, okay. Yeah. And gotcha. the like pincer, the clamps on his hand. And it's the, ooh, this is what we'll have in the future. We'll all wear silver with rings glued on it. And, you know, the, the very early, what is sci-fi going to look like? Mm -hmm. And now we've gotten to this, okay, what does a society wear when you've been spacefaring for so long? It's just a given. And we don't need blinking lights and buttons and ooh super fancy technology we can be like yes i have a floating i have a spaceship but my spaceship looks like my palace because it is my palace right and we did a like bang job of that in dune the miniseries no fucking notes love everything we used tons of natural fabrics which is exactly what you would expect in a desert environment where you have really especially natural, breathable a, fabrics. the fremen society yeah, and we got all the hats, which we made fun of, but we desperately loved, I desperately loved, and now miss. <laughs> and we had, like, Julie Cox got all of her beautiful dresses, and Chani, and everybody got these just really, like, made-for-them beautiful costumes. And then we get to Children of Dune, where I have every expectation of us having better costumes, because we have a better budget. We've got a bigger budget. They threw money at them. I, I, I want to see it, and I want to see it in the costumes because that's the public face of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like what sells the movie before the movie comes out? It's the poster. What are you wearing on the poster? The costumes. You're not seeing the acting. You're not seeing the plot. You're not hearing voices. You're literally looking at a picture of somebody wearing an outfit, and that outfit has to sell this movie, and I don't really think – that this is the strong point of this miniseries. I honestly think... The, the, the costumes costume, are very hit and miss. I honestly think the costume designer took all of what little cocaine they were given and did it all, and then was like, I drew them up last night. Here you go. Especially the ones that we have Alice Krieg wear. Alice Krieg? Alice Krieg? Did we de decide? No. I didn't look it up. <sighs> the Borg Queen. So the costumes that Alice is wearing... Okay, she's not a not pretty woman, but she's an unconventionally pretty woman. She kind of reminds me of Charlize Theron, where Charlize Theron is beautiful, mm. but in the right context, Charlize Theron can rough up real well. Right. Yeah, like in... Um, Monster. Monster, where you're like, holy shit, is that Charlize? And then she can be absolutely stunningly beautiful. She can be both. Alice is the same way, except... You need someone who knows how to dress her. And they had no fucking clue. Like, first of all, she's phoning it in. She's phoning it in. Right. She right. Is this, not... is, this is a made-for-TV miniseries. Yeah. And she's a world-class actress. 
they wanted her name on the yeah on the list, and so she she, she shows up for the paycheck. Yeah, that's what it feels like. I but don't. It's like they took the costume designs for the previously cast actress for Lady Jessica. Yeah, and we're like, ah, she can wear the same same stuff, and we. We have some costumes left over that we didn't use in the first series, but they're not styled for her. Well, it would that would imply that they were using the same costume designer. I'm not sure if they are or not, but well, I mean, they may still be using some of the same stuff. Uh, no, she's just so all over the place. I feel like in the first the first miniseries, we really gave everybody kind of a theme. Mm-hmm. Everybody sort of had costumes that felt like. That's their style, and that's what they wear. Right. And we don't do that in this And one. we really have to in a world as complex as Frank Herbert's Dune universe. Right. Because there's so many, like, distinct players that are part of their own culture. They're, right. They are their own separate culture, so they have their own style of clothing. And so everybody no. needs, like costumes that feel sufficiently distinct yeah yes they do and (laughs) there's that moment where jessica walks off so she's finally come back to caladan which in my notes we are oh sorry (laughs) to arrakis um we will get my ted talk on how jessica is the main villain of the entire series but we're not there yet she comes back to Arrakis, and she, we get this like beautiful. Brian Tyler is giving us this swell of music, Jessica's theme of her coming back, and her triumphant return to Arrakis. And apparently, Alice Krieg doesn't know how to walk down a ramp with any sort of. She like stumbles down this fucking ramp. I need you to walk down this ramp like the queen you are. This is low hanging fruit for you. Mm-hmm. You should be able to walk down this ramp. Okay. I mean, this is on also the director a little bit. If you know she can't walk down this ramp, you frame the shot. Don't show me her feet. Okay. <laughs> show me waist up of her walking down this ramp. That's not hard. Just face on. And then she is wearing this super fitted white dress which is not helping her walk at all because she can't take a full step right and she has this weird black and white fur rough muff thing that she's wearing around her neck and then she has like a plastic salad bowl on her head what the fuck is happening in this scene i was like this is supposed to be the grand return of yeah the queen the mother of the emperor yeah and I was so disappointed. I'm so disappointed yeah, in the costumes. That scene didn't hit. I didn't notice the costumes until I was rewatching. Like I noticed them in the second and the third, and I was like, I didn't notice that they were that bad. And then I went back and watched the first one. And there are definite. There's definitely a shirt that Paul wears for like two thirds, like the second two thirds of the of the episode, and he's sewn into this shirt. It does not have fastenings. It goes. It's done up the back, and he's oh, sewn yeah. in. Oh yeah, and you you pointed out there's a seam in the back. Yeah, he's where sewn it's in, and like he's pulling apart. He's not even sewn in well to this shirt, and I was so upset. And like, it doesn't change how I feel about the actors or the story or any of it. I still enjoy it. I still enjoy what's happening. I still enjoy all of the changes. But can we all agree that costume designers 
need more credit. They need what? What happened? Did they give them a bunch of money but not enough people? Did they give them too many people and not enough money? Were there too many extras? Like, were you trying to outfit too many people and it just went over your head? Because later we're going to get Alia, who the lady who plays Alia, Daniela Amavilla, mm-hmm. is beautiful and tall and curvy. And it is clear that this costume designer only wanted to design for the heroin chic that was popular at the time. The I heroin have no the boob- drug, right? A heroin chic was what you called those act. Those oh, models. I thought you meant. I was thinking like, um, looking turbucolic mm. used to be fashionable. Yeah, like that, and because it, was it makes you very chic. slender and pale and yeah. whatever delicate. So I thought you were saying heroin, like I take drugs that waste my body away yeah. and make me slend- like I am slender. I am saying that, but also that was the slang term for, think Paris Hilton in early 2000s. Right. Yeah. Right. And this woman is not. She has breasts. She has hips. She is slender, but she is curvy. And they had no fucking clue what to do with her. We wear a couple of dresses where I'm like, okay, that's really pretty. Especially the ones where it's layered. She has a dress underneath and then she has this long flowing jacket on top. Mm -hmm. That's really pretty. But then later she's talking to Jessica and she has on this white dress. No one who is curvy should be put in structured fabric. Ever, 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 ever. It makes her look like she's wearing a white box. And it makes her look dumpy. And she is not by any stretch of the imagination. In addition, the camera is like below her hip height they're filming alice alice they're not filming daniela they're filming alice and it's bitterly obvious yeah and alia should be the star of this show and it just makes me hate jessica more which is (laughs) even possible and then later alia gets like a blouse pantsuit combination which is the biggest fucking cop out for a costume designer when you have a curvy when you have someone who is not a size zero you put them in a blouse and pants. And that's what Alia fucking gets is like a blouse and pants. No, no, no. She is the empress of the universe. I need this woman to look like the empress of the universe. You want to put her in pants? That's fine. I have no specific objection to the pants. It's the I fucking phoned it in costume design that we give Alia. And I was so upset with it. She should have dresses that highlight all of her curves. She should have tons of fabric. She should have regal looking dresses. We get one outfit where I'm like, okay, you are the religious leader of an empire, maybe. And it's the one where she kind of looks like knockoff Cleopatra. And that's towards the end. Yeah. In the scene where Jessica gets, um, almost gets assassinated. And like that one's okay. The It's fine. The collar had some construction issues because it's not even. It's different sizes on both sides. This is just me being super nitpicky because I like fabric and costume design and sewing and all of those things. And then that is something that jumps out to me. I, it probably didn't even occur to you. Mm. Uh, uh- I noticed a couple of her costumes were like, eh, that's not flattering yeah. at all. No, and there's like one where the she's opposite. got this um, metallic fabric, and this metallic fabric looks like tinfoil. It is so thin. And they tried to structure it around her breasts, and it completely didn't work. This woman has boobs. Give her, give her, sh- like, give her 
Straps. Straps. So she can wear a bra. Yeah, she wears all these strapless things. Everything is strapless. And so she's wearing this strapless silver dress. Nobody else is wearing strapless stuff. No, which looks like it's tinfoil. So it is completely not holding them in any kind of a place at all. And then they put a cape on it. So they add all of this extra weight on this already filmy fabric. So it's filmy fabric in the front, not structured, not well fitted to her. And then we put a cape on the back, which is completely pulling it out. And there's a scene where she has to stalk back and forth and she holds her dress up. She does this thing where she like tucks her hand under her, underneath her cape and she like holds directly under her boobs and she plays it off like I'm pacing. I have my hands on my hips, but she's holding her dress up. And then there's another scene where James McAvoy is wearing like a shirt, pants, and then he's wearing this cape slash cloak thing. And he has to hold the cloak back because it's so ill-fitting. And so he's got his hands like awkwardly wrapped around the edges of the cloak. I should never see an actor interact with a costume in a way that they wouldn't normally interact with this costume. They can flick this costume around. They can do dramatic things with it, but they should never have to hold it up or hold it out of their way. That is just poor costume design. And um, th- thank you for coming to my TED Talk. We will now move on to the rest of the show. <laughs> Maybe. You know what we didn't phone in? The jewelry. Susan Sarandon. Yes. We didn't phone Susan. There is one costume that Susan Sarandon wears where she has this gold, uh, like gold pentagon thing directly in the middle of her chest. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, I noticed that. It's off center. And the way they constructed it, they tried to. It looks to me like it's like they, a peekaboo window. It's a peekaboo window, but what they did was like sew the front and the back, and then they sewed them together and turned the whole thing so it would have no raw edges. Mm-hmm. But it ends up uncentered and uneven and thick because of the way they did it. So it mm-hmm. sits really oddly over her chest. Yeah. It yeah. They went for the look great. rather than how that construction was going to work with the actor's body right yeah that's uh i'd say that's a good summary yeah is they went for the the aesthetic rather than all i don't know you don't have to compromise on the aesthetic but you complete the aesthetic by applying that aesthetic to the actor that's going to wear it right it's like julie cox we get her in her like satin dress in the first episode which looks beautiful and then they're i think what they're trying to do is age her up in the next one Mm -hmm. and because time has passed 18 years have passed 20 years have passed so she's supposed to look part one between part one and the next part because the kids have to grow up it's nine years later oh i guess i guess you're right Yeah. Not in the miniseries. Yeah. So in the book, it's nine years later. Yeah. But. No, it's like eighteen years later, and so everybody needs to look a little older. So they give her this awful, awful haircut. <laughs> what is this? And then they give her like frumpier clothes, sort of. Every once in a while, she's like, "Oh, I'm going to put my battle jacket on today with my <laughs> pants," and then she gets one outfit that kind of looks like Alia's, but she gets straps, even though she could go braless. Okay. Anyway. I already ended my TED Talk. You drove me back into my TED Talk. And I'm just going to keep going. So the Golden Path. I want to talk about the way that we treat the Golden Path, which is different in the miniseries versus the books. And I don't think either the book or the miniseries does a very good job of defining what the Golden Path is. They're just like, the Golden Path, Father. I'll take it. 
Okay, I think that's on purpose. Yeah. And here's why. Okay. The whole idea of when you're world building, you give hints at things that exist in your world that the reader or viewer fills in themselves. Okay. And if you do that well, then the world ends up feeling much larger and much more real, plausible, yeah, complete, coherent, whatever, than if you had spent like a couple years filling in the details. Like you can do it at where you have this large, real feeling world where you've you have filled in all the details like Tolkien did. Yeah. But he spent literally decades building the entire world's mythology and filling it with stories and characters that a lot of times you don't even reference, but you can throw a lot of extra detail in and because you kind of wrote everything to be consistent in as a world history the little hints feel consistent as a world history. Yeah. If you don't want to go like hardcore like Tolkien did, you just sprinkle these little tidbits around that are like a seed in the the viewer's mind. Yeah. That they can then grow into whatever will fill the gaps. And if you shape the gaps correctly, then the reader viewer fills in and they enjoy it. I think the golden path, the hints that we have about the golden path are it's this kind of complex but ultimately beneficial um, outcome for the human race. Um, so rather than Frank Herbert spending like a lot of time doing like heavy philosophical thought on what would be a like a plan I could describe with some details that would actually feel like it fit there with all the depth that we're putting into how Leto the second acts about it. He just makes implications yeah. about what the golden path is. I mean, normally I would agree with you. And I think the golden path is supposed to not be explicitly defined Mm. because the way Leto talks about it is seeing the future locks you into that future. Right. So you don't actually have any freedom to... To know the future is to be trapped by it. Yeah. Yeah. So Leto II's um, adjustment for that is he, he just turns off his prescience. Yeah. So that things can happen that he's not aware of, which puts him into different timelines. Right. And so there's the, I was, that's a, a good, I don't, like psychological principle for doing something when you're engaging in an activity. If you have attached yourself, to exactly what the outcome of that activity will be, you're pretty much in for disappointment. Yeah. Um, and because of how the human brain works with 
you get dopamine when you are pursuing a goal, but you don't really get dopamine for achieving a goal. Once you've achieved the goal, you're not pursuing anything anymore. And once you're not pursuing anything, your dopamine drops. Right. So pursuing a goal feels good. Achieving a goal does not. But the way things are explained to us in modern Western culture, you set goals and achieve them and that's success. Yeah. But it feels ultimately disappointing because that's not how your brain works. So when you're engaging in a task, you can focus on the doing of the thing and then kind of just let go of the idea of the like accomplishment at the end. And I've heard people talk about it as pursuing the open-ended future. Yeah. Where you assume that the thing you are doing will produce a desirable outcome, but you you just get kind of hand wavy about what that exact outcome will be. Right. And that's a more psychologically healthy way to try to do things. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what Leto's doing is he has some guidelines about how things need to go. Yeah. But he's not fixated on the like prescience view of what that outcome will be. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, normally I'd agree with you that broad strokes make certain broad strokes can make a world feel bigger, but I feel like the golden path is so central to Dune. It needed to be clearly defined. And I think in the book, it's clearly defined as the one way to save everybody. Like this is the one path where everyone will survive. Well, not everyone, but humanity will survive in a whole sense, like (laughs) not in a individual sense. And I think even then it's not clearly defined. And then even with that like moderate expectation, it's like, but how, like, what does that mean exactly? And then I think in the first episode of the children of Dune series, we use golden path as like the way forward but we don't explicitly state like this is the way to survive the apocalypse that's coming. But I think that the way that they end up sort of framing it is like Leto says, um, the thing that I hope for is a universe of surprises. Right. Like no one should know the future because then we are trapped by it. So he is seeking to end prescience as a whole because that's what or, that's yeah, his ultimate. Avoid the trap. Yeah, take it, well, take it away from people because it has cre- it created an arms race. The spice creates an arms race. I can see the future. Okay, well, I can see the future farther. Okay, I can see the future better. Okay, I can see more futures. And I then, can fold space. Uh, yeah, and ultimately you get Paul. And what happened when you got Paul? The world fucking ended. Like, he became the emperor. He killed billions of people. This is what... he He was like Hiroshima. And so... Leto is the afterwards, the what? where do we go from here? Like, we have created this being that can so perfectly... Swords to plowshares? Yeah, that can so perfectly predict the future that he didn't even need eyes. He could just walk through the future without even having to use his own vision because it was so clear to him. Right. And so set in stone, because he had spent so much time in the future, he had created this path we could not deviate from. 
And it, in both senses of could not deviate from, we can't deviate from it because that will change the final outcome. Yeah. But we can't deviate from it because we've actually removed our ability to yeah. deviate from it because we've locked ourselves in so tightly. Right. And I think I like the miniseries adaptation version of The Golden Path better because I think the ending to the Children of Dune book was really unsatisfying. It was like, okay, my dad was a dictator, so I made myself a god, which was not what Paul was going for. Paul was like... Right. It was like my dad was a ruler who everyone thought was a god. I'm actually going to be one. Yeah. 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 I'm actually going to do what he wanted to do, but I'm going to do it better because I'm now a deity. I am Shai Halud. And this version is... I'm, we don't even talk about, are we going to end the thing and bring back, bring back the desert? We don't talk, we don't come up with that solution. It's sort of like, I'm going to free the world from the trap of knowing your future so that everyone can be free. Because Paul did such a good job. He popularized the idea of knowing your future. So then we get like the Dune Tarot, which we didn't mention, but we actually see in the first episode because Gaius Helen Mohiam is using the Dune Tarot when she's sitting in her cell. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has a, a way of seeing their future, which means they have a way of being trapped by the thing they predict. And so he wants to do away with that. We don't really talk about how, but I think it's fine. It's sort of like uh, I, maybe a blend of the two where Paul is going to allow in the books, Paul, not Paul, <laughs> in the books, Leto is going to allow the worms to die out for a period of time to change the way we interact with the spice and then bring them back. And maybe that's exactly what he's going to do. But his goal, I like his goal better. It's not that way I can completely control the evolution of humanity and I can create a better humans based on what I think humanity should be. It's more like, no, I'm going to free humanity by removing this thing that is making us inhuman. So I saw a lot of complaints online. That's why I wanted to address it, where it was like, that's not what the golden path is, or what they, why did it end hopeful? Paul, like, Dune doesn't end hopeful. And I'm like, it's okay for a show to end happy. <laughs> like, it's not an end happy. It ends bittersweet. It ends, but... Even Children of Dune isn't even bittersweet. It's just all bitter. And so when we ended it with like a, okay, he didn't become the god emperor. He became this wild creature that will change the way we interact with the spice, not by being an emperor, but by just being this wild desert demon. Oh, okay, cool. I kind of like that a lot better. We're not there yet because that's the next episode, but I just wanted to like have a discussion about the Golden Path before we move forward because it's such a big deal in the miniseries. It's a big deal in the books, kind of, but there's so much other chaff. I feel like it gets lost. And then this, we, we cut all that. So we have to focus on the Golden Path because we got rid of all of the machinations that distract us from the Golden Path. And you made a good point when we were watching it, which is... Um, there's no nudity in this. Yep. Yeah. I kind of miss it. Like, I miss the Dune miniseries, like, no gods, no rules. <laughs> we do what we want. And we right. were... When, when sci-fi was a cable channel. Yeah. Rather than 
on any like over the air channels. I was trying to articulate this to you before about there's this it's like a wild wild west feeling when they literally threw a couple of million dollars at this dude and were like make dune and he was like fuck yeah and he wrote this phenomenal adaptation of dune he'd only ever done music videos so he was absolutely flying by the seat of his pants to make all this stuff and i saw so many complaints that were like thank god they're not using those awful painted backgrounds or like thank god we found you know what this is a this is something that bothers me a lot which is people will not interact with these older tv shows and movies because of the effects they're like we will accept any amount well not any amount but a certain amount of dated practical effects but as soon as we get dated cg everyone's like oh god the cg is terrible the cg is 20 years old y'all they're calm doing their down, best calm down do you know how expensive this shit was in 2003 it won an award for its effects. Children yeah, of Dune won an award. That's the Emmy that it won yeah. was for visual effects. Right. Calm the fuck down, okay? It happens. These things age. This was the this is what the discussion that was had in 1999 when Star Wars Episode One came out, and it was it was so CG reliant. Was how well is this going to age? Well, spoiler alert, not fucking great. But you just gotta. You got to squint a little and get through it. The story is the point. The story is the point. The story is the point. It is not the special effects. I, I, I get it. I just had a 30-minute rant about costumes. There are things about a way a movie looks that bother me. Does it make me not like the movie? No. Will I watch this miniseries again? Yes. Will I just grin and bear the costumes because the story is the point? Yes. Matt did his eyebrow raise, which means he agrees with me, so I'm going to move on. Okay. <laughs> um, I do like... Okay, so I read an article today about how they're going to change Irulan in the second part of the Dune that's coming out. The Villeneuve's Dune. Oh, yeah. I saw that post. So first of all, don't fucking come at my Dune miniseries and talk about how they didn't do Irulan well. Don't. Don't do that in front of me. Rude. Rude. <laughs> I completely support changing Irulan. I am absolute. I got into a debate with somebody on Instagram about an adaptation because I was talking about The Shining because I don't think The Shining is a good adaptation. And they were like, well, it can't be like a carbon copy, which is true. It, it shouldn't be. I am not asking it to be. I am asking it to be. If you're going to adapt it, you either need to give me the way I felt about the book or you got to make it better. Don't, don't take it. And okay, anyway, so... I think we can all agree Frank fumbles his female characters. Chani is great. Irulan is not even in it, really. Um, Jessica is the main villain of the story. <laughs> uh, but Irulan absolutely gets short shrift. She absolutely is not in it as much as she should be considering her role in all of the plots. Right. And when they put her in the Dune miniseries and they expanded her role, it was like chef's kiss pitch perfect exactly what we needed i don't have any problem with them expanding irulan's role in dune part two i just hope they don't hand her a sword and put her on the battlefield this is right, one of that's my that's not her character this is one of my main complaints and i say this a lot in fee sheath and shatter which is when we think about female strength 
we think about females doing male things. So a woman can't be strong just in political machinations. Then she's calculating. And that's not strength. Right, the double standard. The double standard. She has to be out killing people with a sword. Then she is strong. Irulan in the Dune miniseries is an incredibly strong character. She manipulates her father. She plays him like a fucking fiddle. That is also strength. That is also strength. Even if a woman is doing it, it is not devious. It is not calculating. It is if a man was doing that in a television show, you would consider it strength. Right. So it should be considered strength for a woman too. So I really hope they don't hand her a sword and put her on the battlefield. I will be so, I will, you will hear about it. I promise if that's what happens. Right. Hidden weapon in her dress, uh, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's yeah, defending the herself. Member is of fine. Her royal family, yeah. she needs to defend against assassins. But yeah, she should not be. Her character is consistently described, and the actions fit, like a nerdy bookish girl. Yeah, yeah. Whose right. strength that, is her, her intelligence? Yeah, and her cunning and her wisdom, as it should be. And I will withhold judgment. I'm optimistic that they can interpret her character and strengthen her in the way she needs to be strengthened. And I will reserve judgment until I see it. But also don't come at my Dune miniseries and fucking don't, 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 don't. Anyway, so the thing I like about what we did with the Dune miniseries that works all the way into the Children of Dune miniseries is we expanded Irulan so much she's an actual character. And so we get to keep her around. So we get all of these cute interactions with her and the twins. Like when she picks them up and they fly, they're flying her home and they fly through some worms. And they're like, remember the litany against fear. Fear is the mind killer. And then Ganima goes, I think she's about to let it pass through her because she's really (laughs) upset. And so she becomes like Mama Irulan, like governess Irulan. Yeah. Because she never got to have kids of her own. She gets to raise his kids. They're not genetically hers, but they are hers. Yeah. And I think that that is a wonderful outgrowth of how we changed Irulan. Because in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, the books, she's like barely present. She's, she's pretty much just a puppet for Alia. Yeah. Every once in a while. And Stilgar's hang- the one who raises yeah. them. Yeah. And everyone's just like, oh, I thought Irulan was so smart, but it turns out she's just an idiot. And that's pretty much the only interaction we get with her, which is just terrible. So I love this change for Irulan. One of the criticisms I saw online that I wanted to mention also was that Susan Sarandon, who is having the time of her life, <laughs> she's having so much fun. Susan Sarandon and Alice Krieg overshadow all the younger actors. According to According stuff to online. this thing that the one of the like reviews that I read online, and I have to say that I heartily disagree. I think Susan Sarandon's having a great time. And I think Alice Krieg is phoning it in. I don't think that they, there's that scene where she gets picked up by the Fremen in the throne room and she turns around and she yells at Alia and she yells like, some, I don't remember, something really dramatic, but her face is the exact same face she is always making. Does she have facial expressions? I assume so. She has serious and mildly frightened. And I don't think she has anything in between. Maybe smiling. No, like a 
bemused smile. Yeah, maybe that's it. She's got like bemused smile is sort of resting face. And then mildly concerned is I'm really acting face. And I was just like, no, come on. Fucking show up. Okay. Spend some time, have an energy drink. And when you scream, your face should move. Like, fucking please. Right. So she delivered the line just louder. Yeah. I think the standout actors in this are the lady who plays Alia, Daniela Amavilla, Mm -hmm. Alec Newman, even though he comes back and he has has to work through these prosthetics. We're going to get there. And then James McAvoy, of course, is stellar. And we didn't like Stilgar as much. Um, Right. And I think it comes down to he's a little too, like, clean cut. Yeah. Appearance wise. And he has a British accent. Yeah. Well, there's this is a accent grab bag. That's another maybe issue that I have because I love the first miniseries because we used a lot of local actors. And so they have that. Right. Local they accent. went to Czech Republic. I think it's former Chechnya. Czech. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever it, that area was. Yeah. I guess it was affordable to film in. Yeah. And it had deserts. <laughs> so, I don't think it had desert. I think it had sound stages where they could put sand. Oh, on that, the that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so they just they only flew in the main actors. Yeah. And set up like residences for them, but then all of the extras, even Chani, was local. Yeah. yeah. And so and they all had these fabulous. They all accents. have. They're all speaking English with a Czech accent. Yeah. And so it feels like the Fremen have. And a distinct accent. Yeah. All of the the royal family, whatever, they have a vaguely European, like British, yeah. like Northwestern European oh, accent. Oh, everybody's different. Daniela Amavilla has a Greek accent. But then in this one. Yeah. In uh, this, I'm oh, yeah. talking in about Dune. Dune. Oh, yeah. In Dune. In Frank Herbert's yeah. Dune miniseries, every, there's consistent accents. Right. Um. And so uh, the lady who plays Jessica has a British accent and then mm-hmm. the but and Paul has an American accent, but William Hurt has an American accent. So yeah. he sounds like his dad. Yeah. So, OK, even though Alec Newman's from Glasgow, he could have done a very passable British accent and it would have made more sense when we got here where somehow his children have a British accent. <laughs> That's because they were raised by Irulan. Oh, OK. Yeah. And Irulan has I'm, a British I'm, accent. I'm rationalizing it. Yeah. But- <laughs> So then we get to Children of Dune, yeah, and we bring back some of the same Fremen actors, but otherwise it's it's a grab bag. It's a grab bag, yeah. The guy who plays Stilgar has a British accent now instead of German, which is what he is in the first one. And the thing I liked about the first Stilgar was he had this. Um, I can't change life, so I just need to experience it. He did a very good job of like. I really love you. You're my brother, but you'll most likely kill me in the morning and I'm cool with it. And this one is right, just that's the way. Yeah. And this one's just like, I mean, he's there. It, it kind of fits because he that's feels what happens like, to the Stilgar character. Yeah. He but feels every, like a royal attendant. Every time he has to deliver a dramatic line, you're like, don't, please don't. <laughs> it's like there's that scene where uh, Paul has lost his eyes and he's like, my God, sir. And you're like, please don't. Just whisper that my god sir you know if you can't if you can't deliver it dramatically deliver it emphatically okay don't (laughs) okay so anyway daniela amavilla has a greek accent 
James McAvoy and um, the lady who plays Ganima have British accents. Julie Cox has a British accent. Alice Krieg has an American accent now, and her eyes aren't blue. <laughs> and I was just, oh, okay. Um, it's a nitpick. It's, it's an absolutely a nitpick. It's like this tiny, itty-bitty little thing that doesn't really matter. But I wish they had cast a different actor for Stilgar who still had that. I mean, if you can't get the original guy back, fine. Then give me like a Czech actor, somebody who has a accent that I'm not familiar with. Right, so it that, feels... that would identify them as Fremen. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you notice that when because so Alia, we get a lot more of how she's possessed. She's pre she's yeah. abomination. And did you notice when she has flashbacks, she sees Gaius Helen Mohiam in her flashbacks, like her when they're all screaming Alia in her head, which is, I like how we work that in where she'll be talking to somebody and then you'll hear like Alia and then you see like flashes, like they're yeah. always trying to intrude on her consciousness. I guess Brian Herbert has retconned that uh, Gaius Helen Mohiam was Jessica's mother, which would make her Alia's grandmother, which would mean Alia has her memories. That's a good point. Yeah. Because otherwise there wasn't a... There's no connection. There's no reason why she'd be Yeah, there's head. no reason why she would have yeah. had Mohim's memories. Yep. And then here in my notes, I have another thing about the costumes because apparently it bothered me again. And I think this was the scene where Alice Krieg is wearing this weird-ass 80s headband and <laughs> crop vest. Shit. Whatever that is. So mad. The one, I'm ha the one thing I'm happy about is the priest outfits with the high cowl. Mm -hmm. And Javid looks like a fuckboy. He should look like oh, a fuckboy. Oh, yeah, boy, he pulls it off. And he looks like a fuckboy. Oh, so, and that no those luscious hair. I know. Fuckboy hair is what he has. Yeah. You're like, I got a blowout every single morning. Fuckboy hair. Yeah. And he should, and he does, and I have no notes. And here's the part where I'm going to um, have another TED Talk, and that's about how Jessica is the ultimate villain of the series. And it's not just because I got really mad at Alice and how I didn't feel like she was giving, doing any kind of justice to the character. And mostly... Maybe it supported the mindset. It did support the mindset. That's, let's put it that way. I think we can all agree absolutely none of this would have happened if... She had not done what she did. She has this line where she's talking to Irulan. Okay. She did a lot of shit. Okay. Which, which specific thing? Oh, no, I'm getting there. Should she have I'm getting, not like, done? Did, I'm getting there. So okay. she's talking to Irulan and she's like, um, I should not have left here. Oh, no, she's talking. Yeah, she's talking to Irulan and she's like, this planet took both of the men we love or whatever. And oh, yeah, she says that right. No, she says that to Stilgar. Oh, yeah. She says... Yeah. No, <laughs> no. She says that to Gurney. That's what Gurney, I Gurney, who has Gurney. a crush on her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This planet took both of the men I love. Yeah. Which is not you, Gurney. Which is not you, Gurney. It's never going to happen. Never Let gonna it go, Gurney. It's never going to happen, Gurney. Uh, so Jessica had Paul. She wasn't supposed to have Paul, and she had Paul, which in and of itself would have just been like a slap on the wrist. Like, no, no, girl. You were supposed to have a girl, but you had a boy. But then she goes to Arrakis, and at first, you can kind of understand her motivation for, I am trying to save the life of my son. And in order to do that, I'm going to cash in my Bene Gesserit prophecy chips, and I'm going to make him the Messiah. And then I guess in order to like follow up with that, I'm going to have to become like a reverend mother 
fuck the baby in my womb who gives a shit. I've already got Paul. This is like the spare. It's an heir and a spare. (laughs) (laughs) Who gives a shit about Alia? And so she dooms Alia to a life of turmoil and possession by taking the water of life while she's pregnant. And then like there were certain points where she could have absolutely been like, okay, Paul, I'm going to stay on as your advisor and we're going to work through this where we don't, you don't end up killing billions of people. Like maybe the reason that he couldn't see a way out is because there's no way his mother was ever going to be a good mom. There was no universe. <laughs> there was no, no timeline where Jessica like handled her shit, handled to be her a own responsible shit. parent. Yeah. Yeah. And then as soon as all of everything shakes out, she's like, Peace out, like, child daughter. Peace out, young son who just turned 18. Um, I'm dipping. See y'all later. Uh, oops, sorry. I congratulations mean, never. on being the emperor. Yeah, congratulations on being the emperor. I'll be on Caladan. Please don't call. I'll call you. And so she leaves. She leaves. Fucking leaves. Leaves Alia with Paul. And all Alia has is Paul. All Paul has is Chani. So Paul and Chani are the only adults who have in have any way of understanding Alia, even in the slightest. And we get that a little bit in the first episode where Paul reigns Chani in a couple of times. Not Chani, Alia. Paul reigns Alia in a couple of times because he understands what she's going through. Yeah. He gets it. Well, I think he has half of it. Well, he understands that she is struggling. He may yeah. not understand her specific struggle, but he does not see her as the bad guy. He right. sees the thing that is happening to her. It's like an addict. Someone has, someone is suffering from addiction. They are not their addiction. Right. Alia is not her possession. She is suffering from abomination. Right. And it kills her. It takes her life. It doesn't take her body, but it takes her life. Yeah. And, Alia loses Paul and Chani on the same day. And who does not come to help her? Not only does she lose them on the same day, she also gains uh, two babies. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't talk about this in the book because um, probably because Frank had absolutely no conception of what it was like to like go through that he just he oh it's just he fumbles this again and it's that alia the only person alia had was paul and we illustrate that so beautifully in the miniseries like when jessica comes to caladan and she's given a room and it's paul and chani's room and alia has not touched it it is exactly the way they left it 18 years everything that was theirs is still in there because it is sacred space Right, that's the closest thing that Alia has to an emotional connection to anybody. Yeah, and it's the only thing she has. She doesn't have Paul's body. She doesn't have anything. Everything was taken from her. And then her mother shows up, and we do this really well too. Her mother shows up. She goes to hug Alia, but she's looking at the twins. Mm -hmm. And Alia's like, of course, you're here to see them. I should have guessed. And she doesn't get a confrontation in the book, but she gets a confrontation in the miniseries where she's like, I fucking hate you. I 
hate you and I love you. Like you are the only person that I have, but I hate that you're the only person that I have. And I'll never forgive you because you did this to me and then you fucked off. And that is why Jessica is the primary villain in the entire series, because she never took any kind of responsibility for what she did, never worked to mediate the fallout of what she did. She saved her own life and then she fucked back off to Caladan and was done with it. Yep. Yep. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Alec Newman gets to come back in this, even though it's 18 years later. But guess what, y'all? He's a desert wizard now. <laughs> what is that outfit? More costume stuff, Rachel. Uh, really? Yes, I'm sorry. So surprised. Are you? You shouldn't be. No. Um, he rocks it as much as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. He acts through his costume because he has this weird... What the heck? This guy is blind. And you give him a robe that is so long, it drags on the ground behind him? No, thank you. What the fuck is this? And then maybe it's he, belted. Maybe he dressed himself. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's got this staff, which is fine. But it's got something in the top that has like fibrous. It looks like he's got hair, yeah, like it, a hair wad. It looks like it has like a stone or something at the top of it. But it's not like a cut gem or anything. Yeah. It's just... Like a rock or like a turd or something. Yeah. And then there's like fibers hanging off of it. Like some of, some of his hair got stuck in it or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, you know what? The, the makeup isn't bad, actually. I Going back and seeing the makeup, I was like, cool. Like, I like your gross teeth. And Okay, good. Um, you kept going on. But like before we rewatched part two. <laughs> You kept going on about Paul's makeup and yeah. it, there was this image burned into your mind yeah. of chapped lips and bad, like age up, rough up makeup. But in my mind, it was like, okay, it, it's fine. And so I'm, I'm glad it's yeah. not as bad as your memory uh, yeah, of it. No, I don't think the makeup is bad. I think what bothers me is the cost, the thing he's wearing because he's wearing this thing that looks like it was made for somebody who's seven feet tall <laughs> because the sleeves... And Alec Newman is not. No, the sleeves are down to his knees. The robe is like 18 inches too long and dragging behind him. And then it's belted somewhere around his like upper thigh. I don't know what is <laughs> happening here. Um and I think that's what that's what bothers me because anytime he's seated and he's just being Paul, like just waiting out, Paul wanted to die, y'all. He walked out into the desert. He was like, thank God I am finally done. And he didn't get to get done. He got picked up by the people at Jakarutu and they were like, we could use you. And he's like, fuck. They spice tranced him. Everybody like uses him. me. Like, oh God. Okay, fine. You too. Mom used me. Yeah. Sure. She used me to save her own life. Mm -hmm. And sure, you use me too. Fucking fine. And you can tell it's just like, oh, I'm so tired. I am so tired. I didn't, I didn't even want to be in this world. And here I am still here. And now I'm having to continue to work to undo my legacy because Alia won't let it go. And Alia won't let it go in the book because she doesn't want to let the power go. And in mm -hmm. the show, it's because she sees it as her duty to Paul. And that is a brilliant change. Yes. Yeah, yes. that keeps her as 
an actual character. It keeps her as a uh, sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. You like all the things that she's doing. She's yeah, it doing makes her a much more tragic character. She's trying to be Paul, but she's not Paul. She's trying to see the future the way Paul did, but she can't. She's trying to rule the way Paul did, but she can't. And by trying to be Paul, she destroys herself. Right. And that's perfect. And I love it. Comparison is the thief of joy. It is. And it's also the thief of your own personality, in yeah. this particular one. Because uh, if you're not careful, the evil Baron Harkonnen boogeyman will show up and take over your consciousness. Which I'm really <laughs> glad they were able to bring back Ian McNeese. Yeah, and I like how they display, how they show that, where she cuddles with him, where she's like... Yes. Oh, yeah, and they, like, they speak the in sync with each other yeah. when he's like really exerting himself. Yeah. The special effects... For the Harkonnen, like, mind ghost thing yeah. <laughs> are pretty good. They're, yeah. They're um, not bad. Because it's these, like, blooming red clouds that yeah. are, like, CG-wise, they're cut in seamlessly. Yeah. And every once in a while, he's physically there. And then we – he is, from her perception, her savior because he silences the other voices. Right. And – the way they show that is exactly like perfect. That's how you, sh- that's how you do adaptation. You can't have those voices whispering in her head and illustrate the control that he has over her in the the way that you can do that in a book. You need to show it visually and they figure out the perfect way to show it visually, which is why just having him there and having his voice in her head sometimes and then having him physically there sometimes. Like when Javid is around and he's like, maybe we need something to take the edge off. You could do that Mm -hmm. for me, couldn't you? You could, how about that beautiful boy? Let's bring that beautiful boy in. And it's so, it's perfect. Like that's, it's so good. And it's, this is how you do adaptation. This is how you do adaptation. You don't need to do one-to-one. Like I know, when I was having that debate online, someone was like, well, everybody hated the Lord of the Rings when it came out because they left so much out. And I'm like, yeah, of course they left so much out. It's like <laughs> so much fucking bigger. You know what a good adaptation does? It goes, ooh, I need to find the book and read it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want everything in the Lord of the Rings. I didn't want Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is not a great much. section. Right. He drags down the pace of the book. And I'm fine with it in the book. But if you put that in a movie, I'd be like, oh, fucking Tom Bombadil, great. You know, it's like Bajaz. If we had all of Bajaz's dialogue, it would have felt like stab me in the eye. Yeah. But in a book, yeah, I loved every time he opened his mouth. But I have different expectations for a book. And I should. I like how we changed the garden, the garden in the palace. Mm -hmm. Because when in the Dune miniseries, it's a bunch of like dew collectors and some potted plants. Yes. And then we come back and it's a fucking forest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a forest glade in the middle of the palace. And this also lends credence to my Jessica is the main villain of the series because she comes in and she's like, oh, like I'm shocked that it's still here. And Irulan's like, well, yeah, you promised the shout out Mapes that this would always be here for the people. And Paul always honored your promises because she left Paul too. She left everyone, and they all held a torch for her long after she left because they had no one else, and she did not care at all. She just went back to Caladan to live her life because it was too hard to be in the place where her husband died. 
Well, okay, and in that process, you lost your daughter and your son right. just, and your just grandchildren. Like it was hard for Paul to be in the same place where his dad died. Oh, yeah, like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you think about that, Jessica? No, you only think about your fucking self. <laughs> Sorry. And there was there was a role for her in in the fabric of how yeah. the Atreides uh, you know, dukedom acted. Ultimately, Jessica sacrifices nothing. Nothing. She loses her husband because of the choice that she made. But every other choice, every other thing that happens is because she left. What does she give up, Jessica? Uh, I, th- I was thinking, I think a lot of the stuff, the same stuff, like, galaxy-wise, would have happened the same. Because most of those actions but are like dependent on... On you know needing to conquer the like former Shaddam's ter- um, stuff, but everything interpersonally in the Atreides family that happens, like, all the negative stuff that happens interpersonally in the Atreides family, is because Jessica left. Yeah, Ugh. I'm mad at Jessica, so she's got to get it out. It's like a tumor. <laughs> just like Jessica. <laughs> I think it's just when you look at the contrast of what Paul goes through. So Paul is brought to Arrakis at 15. He loses his dad. He gets thrown out into the desert with his mom. They get picked up by some Fremen and his mom literally takes him, puts him in front of her and is like, look, guys, I brought the Messiah. You're welcome. And from that moment on, it's like she put a train on the tracks and he has no choices. Right. Because as soon as she uses him to fulfill this prophecy to save her own life, ultimately to save her is too, but also to save herself, um, he's trapped. And so he gets Chani. That's like the one good thing that he gets out of everything that happens to him. And then ultimately he has to lose Chani. He doesn't have a choice. And I loved that scene in the first one when we, he is literally like physically in pain trying to say no to Sightail because Sightail is offering to give him Chani back. And every time he says that, Paul can see a future where Chani is back. Paul mm-hmm. sees her holding their children. Paul sees them sitting together and playing chess. Paul sees them doing all of these fun, safe family things together and he has to give that up because of the decisions his mom made long ago because he can't have chani and take down his own legacy and do everything that he needs to do to create a world where his children will be able to live right because dismantling his legacy is going to create a lot of enemies and even if chani comes back she's just gonna get killed again i mean there's no it doesn't create safety Right. And so he has to give that up and it hurts and it's hard and he ultimately cannot live in a universe. He can't bear it. He can't live in a universe where he had to give that up. And so he leaves. He walks out into the desert. Jessica loses what? Her? Uh, she loses things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But who does she ultimately choose in the end? Herself. 
and you look at what she did to Paul and then just got to go, got to go back. And then we get that scene where Ganima and Leto are playing chess. And I like it for several reasons. One, because I like watching them play chess really fast with each other mm-hmm. because it's part of like they are so in sync and they are so beyond their fits older so much older than their physical appearance and isn't it cool how fast they can play chess but also in his memories he saw them doing that together paul did Mm -hmm. i thought he didn't actually see ganima he see no because at that point he knew there were twins this is when um chani is died and saitail's like i can bring her back and every time he does that we get this like bombardment Mm -hmm. of flashes of what life would be like if they were all together and one of them is them all playing chess together gotcha and that comparison is heartbreaking he gave up everything even though he's not dead he still can't have them he had to give absolutely everything up because of a decision that was made for him and it saved his life. Yes, he got to live a life he wouldn't have gotten to live otherwise, maybe. But she also just, did she consider the consequences for Paul when she did that? Or was she just thinking about the short term? And uh, maybe I need to reread the books again. And just with that in mind of like, what else could Jessica have done? I don't, I'm not sure, but I just know that it bothers me that she couldn't bear the weight of what she did. One other thing I want uh, to end on a lighter note. Let's end on a lighter note. It's hysterical how many people sneak around the city wearing cloaks with their hoods up. I feel what, like, like it's hard. <laughs> I feel like it's that scene from the Good Omens when from Good Omens when they're sitting on the bench. And every time they sit on the bench and read a newspaper, like one time a Russian guy sits next to him and he he's like trying to say a code word. And Crowley's mm-hmm. like, oh, you want the this prime minister? He's over on that bench. And he goes over to sit on that bench. And they talk about how the the ducks are actually connoisseurs because so many foreign nationals come and feed the ducks that like they prefer the brown bread fed by the Russians or whatever. And it's just it reminded me of that because Paul sneaks around with his hood up. Um, Cha- uh, Alia sneaks around with her hood up. Duncan sneaks around with his hood up. Leto and Ganima. Leto and Ganima sneak around with their hoods up. Jessica sneaks around with her hood up. <laughs> Everybody's just... I mean, if you are on the streets of Arakeen and you see someone with your hood, their hood up, they're probably a member of the royal family. Just go ahead and make that assumption. <laughs> well, I think everybody does to keep sand out of your face. And that's why it's a good anonymous yeah. disguise. Ooh, Okay, I'm sorry. I said I was going to end on a lighter note, but I'm not because I want to talk about the still suits. And this is one of the few complaints that I feel is legitimate, which is these still suits look like shit. (laughs) (laughs) They look like a turtleneck and pants and a like respirator mask. Yeah, it's just loose fitting. It's like sweatpants. I mean, come on. We bought the other ones on like a cocaine, like cocaine and 10,000 bucks. You couldn't, you couldn't drag right, those out of like, storage. To look like NASCAR suits. And the, the argument is this is like 18 years into, there's actual moisture in the atmosphere. There's clouds. We right. don't need still suits. Right, the still suits are unnecessary. Yeah, the still suits are now, they're like Walmart still suits. Like before we were all like wearing handcrafted Fremen still suits that were made in the siege. 
and they were made to like keep water loss down to like a bare minimum. And now they're effectively just like cooling suits. It's they a, don't need to. It's a social signaling mechanism too. Yeah. I mean, in the book, they wear fake ones. And but so, they, they look like the old ones. Yeah. I just, the mask, but like the mask bothers me because it's like hooks that go around their ears and it's just this weird little respirator mask and there's no hood. I don't know. I was just like, hard pass. That's not great. And they're not connected in a meaningful way to the rest of the suit. There's like a tube. And then they have to keep dealing with them. Like the actors have to keep dealing with them because they hang weird. And mm -hmm. so they have to keep like tucking them into their waistband to get them out of the way. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just going to leave it there. Um, I, I do want to point out that I love this miniseries. I the way I think if you've listened to us at all, you know that the way that we love things is um, by knowing the truth of a thing. If I I can't love a thing and ignore the problems, I have to accept the whole thing. And then that's a more meaningful way of interacting with it for me. So the the criticisms are uh, both valid but nitpicky because I love this miniseries. And I'm super excited about watching the next one and then probably going back and rewatching them all again because poor Matt has been subjected to them like four <laughs> times already. So it's all good. Eh. So I guess we'll leave it there until the next time. So remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.